Uh, This morning we are going to continue our exposition of the book of Genesis together. We've we've noted a recurring pattern here of God's provision and man's sin, God's response of grace, and we've traced that pattern through each of our four basic relationships, our relationship with self, with others, with the world, and with God. And this morning we're going to see those same uh, two patterns continue to unfold Martin Luther, famous reformer, said, uh, all sin is essentially a violation of the first commandment of God's prohibition against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. Idolatry, as Pastor Tim Keller defines it, is when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing. It becomes our God. And unfortunately, as the other great reformer, John Calvin, astutely observed, our hearts are idol factories, as God himself put it in Genesis chapter 8 last week that we studied together. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, speaking of Tim Keller, he wrote a book years ago that I would commend to you entitled Counterfeit Gods, in which Keller argues that all of our heart's idols can basically be classified into four overarching categories. And so I'm going to let his four categories of idols serve as our outline for this morning because what I think we are going to find in today's passage are four distinct characters, four types of sinners who each epitomize one of these four types of idolatry. There's the sin of Noah, there's the sin of Ham, the sin of Canaan, and finally, the sin of Nimrod. And as we'll see, we might even consider each of these sins that they're guilty of to be a unique distortion of one of those four basic relationships that we've already examined, self, others, world, God. So we'll walk through that. We've already been introduced to our fair share of sins by this point in the Genesis story, Adam's pride, Cain's anger, Lamech's tyranny, the sons of God's lust, but this morning as sin continues its spread outward, I want to continue to probe downward with you to try and get to the bottom of our sin problem. Keller claims that these four root idols of our heart that he he categorizes here are, are really the sin behind the sin, if you will. They're the idols which, if they begin to replace God's position of centrality in our hearts, they will give rise to all the other forms of sin. And so let's begin by reading the passage together from the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 18, all the way up through chapter 11, verse 9, and we're going to skip some sections of chapter 10's genealogy uh, simply for the sake of time. But would you stand with me as you're able uh, there at home for the reading of, of God's word? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pashrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon. His firstborn in Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamalthites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans their languages, their lands, and their nations. Finally, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. This will only be the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word. And as we now humble ourselves, submitting ourselves under its authority, we pray that you would use it to guide us, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, train us in all righteousness. Pray that you'd use it to conform us more into the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, the first root sin that we discover here in 
Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, with the character of Noah, is the idol of comfort. Keller defines comfort as a longing for pleasure. We might think of it as one's relationship to self gone awry, gone wild, caring for oneself first and foremost, my own creature comforts above anything else. That's what Noah succumbs to here. We read in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good. Farming was an honorable profession, perhaps the ideal profession. That was Adam's original vocation from God back in the Garden of Eden, to tend and cultivate it. Horticulturalists inform us that vineyards originated from Armenia, which is precisely where Genesis 8 says the ark landed. The vine is viewed in a positive light in many Bible passages representing everything from a blessed wife in Psalm 128.3 to God's chosen people, Israel, in Jeremiah 2.21. Even Jesus himself in John chapter 15 famously said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And so Noah makes a good start here in this newly recreated post-flood world. Then we read on, verse 21, he drank of the wine. Now, things start to get a little less clear biblically. Has Noah sinned already at this point? Of course, depends on which denomination you ask, right? Someone asked me to do an Ask the Pastor podcast on the question, is drinking alcohol a sin? Well, here you go. On the one hand, Psalm 104.15 says, wine is a gift from God. God made wine to gladden the heart of man. And so Ecclesiastes 9.7 invites us to drink your wine with a merry heart. You can see also Deuteronomy 14.26, Amos 9.14, Isaiah 55.1, Proverbs 31.6. We don't have time to read all these. You can go look them up for yourself later. In the New Testament, Paul goes so far as to instruct Timothy to drink wine medicinally. Even Jesus turned water into wine, his first miracle at the wedding of Cana in John 2. He drank it at the Last Supper with his disciples. So on the one hand, there's a favorable view of wine. But on the other hand, alcohol can be dangerous, Scripture tells us. It was forbidden for the Nazarites, for priests, for kings, and even for common folk. God had warned, Hosea 4.11, beware of wine and new wine, which take away understanding. Proverbs 21 uh, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 30 through 32. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Those who tarry long over wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. While they were wandering in the wilderness, we, we hear that the Israelites uh, did not drink wine or strong drink, that they might know that he is the Lord, their God. Wine can come in the way of our knowing God more deeply. In the New Testament, we hear in Romans 14, 21, it's not good to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 1 Timothy 3, 8 says church leaders are not to be enslaved to it. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine. Indeed, drunkenness was explicitly outlawed in the Old Testament, Isaiah 5 and 28, Proverbs 21, 1 Samuel 1. It's clearly still prohibited in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. So we discover that like so many comforts, money, sex, social media, 
alcohol in and of itself isn't inherently bad. In fact, it's good. It's a good thing, a gift from God, but it's all about how you use it. And the danger with alcohol, with money, with sex, with social media is that they are all inherently addictive. It is precisely because they are good, they are so desirable that they leave us wanting more of them, that they are so dangerous. Remember, our idols are almost always good things that become the best thing to us. And that's exactly what happens to Noah. Verse 21, we hear he drank and he became drunk. And now the guessing is over. The line has been crossed. A once blameless and righteous man, Noah, in chapter 6, proves here in chapter 9 that he's really no different from all of his now drowned former contemporaries. He's no different from us, from you, from me. Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all sinners in desperate need of God's grace. And as we saw with Cain's example in chapter 4, sin begets more sin. In this case, specifically with alcohol, it tends to lower your inhibitions, right? And so it often leads, Habakkuk 2.15, Lamentations 4.21, to the sin of immodesty, indecent exposure, as our legal system codes it. And sure enough, rounding out Noah's rap sheet, here in verse 21 we hear, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, exposed, disgraced. But we can safely assume that it all started with his desire for just a little comfort. Just a little wine. Just a little channel surfing. Just a little internet browsing. And four hours later, right? I'd be comfortable if we had just a little more in the bank account. You blink and your kids are grown up. All they have to show for is memories of you stuck at the office with work or escaping to the comfort of the golf course or the volleyball court, the casino, the bottle, the chat room, the Cardinals game. What is it for you? What is your escape? How do you self-soothe? What are your creature comforts? Idol number two is Ham's desire. In verse 22, for approval. Keller defines approval as the longing for acceptance. That might seem at first like an odd way to categorize Ham's sin here, but it's a rather odd story, so consider it with me. We read in verse 22 that while Noah is drunk and naked in his tent, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, what was Ham's sin there? Was it seeing his father naked? Verse 23 sure makes it seem that way. We hear then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it over their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. So Shem and Japheth, the two older sons, go to great lengths to avoid seeing Noah's nakedness. But think through it with me. Ham needed some help with his homework, right? So he goes and knocks on Noah's tent flap. No answer. So he says, Dad, you still awake in there? Still no answer. And so he peeks inside, and right smack dab in the middle of the tent, unavoidable, is Noah's 600-plus-year-old naked, exposed body. 
You thought that walking in on your parents was traumatizing. Now, how can God rightfully hold Ham at fault for that? I mean, for all we know, this could have very well been a legitimate wrong place at the wrong time scenario. But here's what we do know. What we do know is what Ham did next. Did he run and grab a blanket to cover Noah up? No. He went and told his two brothers outside. Did he say, Shem, Japheth, help. I accidentally saw dad naked and disgraced, and now I'm afraid I've dishonored and defiled him. Help, what do I do? No. Clearly that wasn't the conversation. That kind of response from him wouldn't have merited Noah's response in verse 25, his curse. No, here we have a kid, the youngest of three, who's never been able to keep up with his older brothers. Maybe he's not as big and strong as Japheth. Maybe he's not as wise and faithful as Shem. But now he's finally got something they don't. He's got dirt on dad, on righteous, blameless Noah. And so Ham thinks to himself, oh man, I have got to tell Shem and Japheth, man, they are never going to believe this, what, what dad did. And friend, you know where your desire to share in the office gossip comes from? Do you know why you pick up and flip through the tabloids while you're waiting in line at the supermarket? Do you know why you want to be the first one to know the breaking news, be in the know and to, to fill everyone else in, be the, re, the, the one who everyone else finds out from? It is your longing for acceptance gone awry. A deep desire for belonging gone wrong. It's a distortion of that second basic relationship, my relationship with others. Namely, I care way too much what they think about me. See, this is how this works. Ever since the fall, we've been a tribal people. We think of relationships in terms of insider-outsider, who gets included and who gets excluded. There's only so much room within the tribe. There's only so much relational capital to go around, if you will. It's a zero-sum game. We cannot all be included. We can't all be friends or else friendship gets watered down and has no meaning. And so, in our desire for approval, to be accepted, to belong, what we do instead is we push others to the margins so that we can occupy a more central place within the tribe. That's why your in-laws drive you crazy. Because for the longest time, they had their own little tribe that you weren't a part of. But it included your spouse, your now spouse, who you're trying to start your own tribe with, a new tribe. And the zero-sum mentality says that the only way that you get to a place of unique intimacy and closeness with your spouse is by replacing her old tribe, his old tribe. You've got to convince her that they're all insane and annoying and insanely annoying so that they get excluded so that you can be included with her. That's how this works. And the danger with the approval idol is that it can be much harder to diagnose than the comfort idol. People start to notice when you've got a drinking problem, a gambling problem, social media addiction, pornography addiction. The need for approval is subtler. 
In fact, it's, it's often applauded. And they don't call you a people pleaser for nothing. But you'll do what you have to do to scratch that itch for acceptance. You'll run off to share a laugh with your brothers at your father's expense. You'll compromise your values to fit in with the cool crowd. This is the stereotypical teenaged idol. But I assure you, it is not just a teen problem. I know adults twice my age with every bit as much a gossip addiction as any alcoholic I know. Do you desire the approval of others more than you desire God's approval? And what lengths are you willing to go to to get it? Idol number three, typified here by Canaan, in chapter 10, is control. Control. Keller defines control as longing for things to go according to my plan. We start in chapter 9, verse 24, where we hear, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, the obvious question is, why Canaan? Canaan, I thought you said it was Ham who walked in on Noah and told his brother. Why isn't Ham cursed? I kind of jokingly wonder if maybe he was, and that's the reason Jews can't eat pig today, because of Ham's sin. That's just a bad joke, but the real reason that Ham isn't cursed by Noah is because he was already blessed by God Back at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons. And what God has blessed, no man can curse. You can just ask King Balak. And so Noah's curse instead falls on Ham's next of kin. Actually, according to chapter 10, Canaan is Ham's fourth son. After Egypt, Put, and Cush, but... He actually uh, acts here as a representative for all of Ham's lineage because as we discover in chapter 10 in what scholars call the table of nations, there is no good apple in Ham's whole bunch. And for the sake of time and our attention spans, I'm going to just walk quickly through uh, one section of chapter 10's genealogy. Suffice it to say, Verses 1 through 5 outline the sons of Japheth, who fathered the Indo-European nations. Verses 21 through 31 detail the sons of Shem, who fathered the Semitic peoples, most importantly the Israelites. But right here in the middle, verses 6 through 20, we get Ham's lineage. And let me just highlight some of the names here for us. See if any of these ring a bell. Egypt, Babel, Assyria, the Philistines, the Canaanites, Sidon, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Anything stand out to you about that list if you know much about Old Testament history at all? Ham's genealogy here, mostly through his descendant Canaan, reads like a who's who of Israel's greatest enemies. And what was the primary sin of Canaan, of the Canaanites, 
his progeny, this people who defy God so egregiously that he justly orders the Israelites to utterly annihilate them off the face of the planet a thousand years later under the leadership of Joshua when he sends Israel into the promised land. What was their sin? Leviticus chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. And then he lists a bunch of their deviances, their sins. But simply put, Canaan followed his own rules. Canaan followed his own statutes because he had been cursed to be a servant. So naturally, like Cain in chapter 4, who rebelled against his curse to be a nomadic wanderer by attempting in vain to build a city, here too, Canaan tries to reject his curse of being a servant by becoming his own master. He wants control. He wants to be a god unto himself. He doesn't want Yahweh calling the shots, telling him what to do. He wants control. And then there's this really interesting cursed connection between our need for control and our relationship with the world. In fact, if you read on in Leviticus 18, God lists their sins, and then in verses 24 and 25, he warns the Israelites, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And we mentioned last week, connection between God's curse on humanity in Genesis chapter 3 and his curse on creation itself. Romans 8 tells us all of creation is groaning, longing, awaiting redemption because the world was made by God for God. God is the sovereign king with absolute authority over every square inch of it. And that means that our sinful desire for control, to be the ones calling the shots, to live like the Canaanites according to our own statutes, my own rules, that throws our whole world out of whack. Just consider our current world circumstance. The COVID-19 pandemic and the global meltdown that it has caused. It's every control freak's worst nightmare. Right? You want to know if control is your idol, how bad are you wigging out right now over COVID-19? And as much as things really do stink right now in a lot of ways, I know it's challenging. It's challenging our comfort idols as well. No volleyball. Takeout food is not the same as going to the restaurant. It's soggy and cold by the time you get it home. Right? First world problems, I know. But on a more serious note, we've got people losing their jobs. People at West Hills have lost their jobs. People losing their lives. Thank God we have not lost any lives at West Hills yet. This disease is terrible. And yet, as Christians, we have to accept the fact that God, in his perfect sovereignty, is allowing 
this disease to continue to run its course, and I can't help but wonder if at least one of the greater goods that God is accomplishing through the coronavirus is reminding a whole bunch of control freaks who is really in charge here. Because you've got a whole bunch of rich, smart, powerful people sitting at home right now, twiddling their thumbs, scratching their heads. They're used to calling the shots. Not anymore. Meanwhile, our God is on his throne in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115. Our last idol, number four. We see it with the character of Nimrod. In chapter 10, who oversees the construction of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. It's just a note that this is not written in chronological order. Chapter 11 needs to fit right in the middle of chapter 10 to be in order. It's the idol of power. Keller defines power as a longing for influence, for recognition. How is Nimrod described in verse 8 of chapter 10? He was a mighty man, the first on earth to be a mighty man. Verse 9 even says that God takes note of Nimrod's might. But any question of his virtue is shattered in verse 10 where we hear the beginning of his kingdom was. See, that's the thing. Nimrod's might was all about him building his own kingdom, not God's. That's confirmed by the kinds of kingdoms that he spawned. Babylon, Acadia, Assyria. These were massive empires, ancient world superpowers. Nimrod would make the world's most powerful leader today look like a nobody. He was a mighty man indeed, but not one in whose footsteps you would want to follow because even the most powerful of leaders will one day have to answer to another king, to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Nimrod, whose name means we shall rebel, by the way. You have to give Nimrod credit. He puts up a good fight. But it's just not a fair fight. He is rebelling against an omnipotent God. In chapter 11, in attempting to construct this tower, there's so many interesting details in all these stories that I have to leave out for the sake of time. Get yourself a good commentary during the quarantine. Stay busy. But let's just skip here to verse 4. We read, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Three things I want to point out here. We'll work our way backward. We'll start with lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God had commanded Noah's offspring in chapter 9 verse 1 to multiply and fill the earth. Instead, they endeavor to build a city lest they be dispersed and have to fill the earth and obey God. So many practical application points we could pull out here. Jesus sent us to go make disciples of all nations, but we won't even cross the street to tell our neighbor about him. Our life group is reading through the book of Acts right now, where God even uses persecution to scatter the early church so his gospel really can go to all nations. Meanwhile, we've got life groups who've been meeting in the same holy huddle for years now. 
God wants to fill the earth with his glory, but we're more concerned with our own comfort, approval, belonging, control, power. It's vulnerable to invite someone new into the life group, to multiply split life groups, to witness to unbelievers, so we just don't do it. Number two, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Again, it's about their power, their kingdom, their fame, their glory. We were created, Isaiah 43, 7, for God's glory. We are here, Psalm 34, 3, to exalt his name. But they want to make a name for themselves. Influence, recognition, power. They bring to mind their later Babylonian descendant, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we find almost two millennia later in Daniel chapter 4, walking on the roof of his royal palace overlooking newly reconstructed Babylon, wondering aloud, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Friends, that is a dangerous place to be. And you just read the rest of Daniel chapter 4, see how it works out for Nebuchadnezzar. Are you building God's kingdom or your own? That's the question for us this morning. Are you pursuing God's glory and fame or your own? Third, they say, let's build a tower with its top in the heavens. John MacArthur notes, Revelation 17, 5 indicates that all the false religions of the world find their way back to Babel because what is religion? False religion. Religion is man's attempt to work our way up to God, to build a metaphorical tower up to the heavens. And this story illustrates just how absurd that idea is. Friend, do you know that your attempt to work your way up to heaven is every bit as ridiculous as the idea that these people could literally build a physical tower up to it? Do you know that? Religion says, I've got to be good enough. I, I, I read my Bible this morning. That's a brick. I said my prayers last night. Another brick. Uh-oh. Had an impure thought. Cracked a brick. Snapped at my kids. Cracked another brick. The idea that with that kind of system, you could ever reach heaven. That you could ever even get off the ground. That you'd be left standing on anything other than a massive pile of cracked bricks is preposterous. But here's the good news, friends. God isn't waiting for you to build up to him. Religion is man trying to climb up. Revelation is God graciously coming down. And we hear in verse 5, the Lord came down. And I'm thinking at this point in the story, oh, they're going to get it now. But just like he did with Adam and Eve, with Cain, with Seth, heck, with the, the other three examples we've already examined today, with Noah, Ham, and Canaan, already God has once again proven that he responds not just with justice but with undeserved grace. To Noah, he sent Japheth and Shem to cover his nakedness. To Ham, God honors his promised blessing and lets the curse fall to, to Canaan instead. And even with Canaan, 
we're going to discover next week in chapter 15 that the reason God allowed the Israelites to stay enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years is because of his merciful patience with Canaan to give the Canaanites a chance to repent of their sins. And so here too, with Nimrod and the other tower builders in chapter 11, just when you think God is going to wipe them off the face of the planet with a mere word, instead he saves them from themselves in verse 7 by confusing their words. Humanism says, together we can do anything we put our minds to. And here in verse 6, God recognizes, oh no, together they can do anything they put their minds to. And that is not a good thing when the intentions of your heart are evil from youth. Cities are just more highly concentrated areas of sinners living in closer proximity. That's why people want to escape out to the suburbs to let our sin breathe a little bit. So in verse 8, God graciously does it for them. He disperses them over the face of all the earth. And like I said, so many other interesting dimensions to this story we don't have time for. We could look at what Jesus says about half-built towers in Luke chapter 14. We could dissect the inversion of the Tower of Babel story in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when instead of man going up, God comes down as the Holy Spirit, and instead of confusing their language, God miraculously allows people of every language to hear the gospel in his own tongue. We could note, as John MacArthur does, that this was the first real city here of man in the new world built for man's glory. It was a preview of a later city called Babylon, which was a preview of a final Babylon that will be built by the Antichrist at the end of human history when the world will be reorganized once again under a central world government, central currency, etc. We could discuss at length you know, the, the dangers of globalism. And yet, we could highlight God's redemptive power, how he promises to one day flip the script. God says he's going to gather the nations, assemble kingdoms, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. We really are coming back to this place of one city, one family, one people, one nation, one tribe, one tongue. We could look all the way ahead to Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that God's going to send down to us since we can't build up. But here's where I want to end. Friends, you are a sinner. You have an idol. Comfort, approval, control, power. It's not a question of if, it's a matter of which one and how bad it is. If you're like me, if you're as good at sinning as I am, you might score really high in all four categories, but admittedly, I'm pretty competitive. But here's the thing. God can and will and wants to graciously intervene for you on your behalf as well, to save you from yourself as well, and he's made a way to do it, to cover your sins to eternally forgive your sins, but it's not you building up. It's got to be him coming down, and he's already done it. He stepped off his throne into the manger, onto the cross, and walked out of the empty tomb. 
and he did it for you. Jesus lived, died, and resurrected to save you from yourself, from your sins. Will you trust in him today? Will you lay down your bricks and trust in him to be your Lord and your Savior today? Look for your approval, your comfort, your control, and your power in him. Find it in him. Let's pray.